According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. You may join me once again in the book of Isaiah. This morning we have arrived at Isaiah chapter 22. Isaiah chapter 22. The Oracle Concerning the Valley of Vision. The Valley of Vision. What's the matter with you? Isaiah 22.1, quoted by every parent that's ever had a child. What's the matter with you? Now, that you have gone up to the housetops, you who are full of noise, You boisterous town, you exultant city. Your slain were not slain with a sword, nor did they die in battle. All your rulers have fled together and have been captured without the bow. All of you who were found were taken captive together, though they had fled far away. Therefore I say, turn your eyes away from me. Let me weep bitterly. Do not try to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. For the Lord God of hosts has a day of panic, subjugation and confusion in the valley of vision, a breaking down of walls and a crying to the mountain. Well, here's where we are. And uh, with the Lord's blessing, we will continue what he has been providing for us, one chapter per Sunday. And uh, for today, it's chapter 22. Before we get started, let's ask the Father his blessing upon our time of study for our setting aside of distractions for humility to receive the word implanted. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do rejoice over the truth of your word. We thank you, Father, for its timeless benefit. It is alive and powerful. It is eternal. Father, this isn't just some message that was given 3,000 years ago. Father, this is alive and powerful, and it is profitable today. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And I pray, Father, that we would be humble to receive this message that we would learn from the rebuke upon uh, Jerusalem, that we would learn uh, the content of this chapter, and that we ourselves might strive to make application so that we don't find ourselves under similar uh, condemnation, under similar judgment of discipline. So, Father, I thank you for this time again today, for your grace that makes it possible. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Again, we have an anonymous oracle. This is the third one now. We had, you remember, there was uh, the uh, land of whirring wings. Remember that one? And was not given by name. Highly unusual. For most of the oracles, there is a name attached to it. The oracle concerning Babylon. All right? No mystery there. We know what Babylon is. The oracle concerning Damascus. We know about Damascus. The oracle concerning Moab. We know about Moab. But there are three times that the oracle is given and it's not a proper name that designates a nation or a city or a specific place. This is now the third of those. We had one last week. The second one of those last week was in chapter 21, the oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea, the desert of the ocean, all right? The place with no water and the place that's all water. And they were put together as the wilderness of the sea. And we dealt with that a week ago in chapter 21. For today, though, we have the oracle concerning the valley of vision. The valley of vision. 
And this is clearly, I believe, well, I put apparently on the slide, but I believe clearly this is a lamentation against Jerusalem. We have a context here whereby the uh, residents are identified, the location is specified in uh, verses 8 through 10, for example. He removed the defense of Judah. In that day, you depended on the weapons of the house of the forest. This was the royal palace that Solomon built with the uh, cedar from Lebanon. Uh, you saw the, uh, that the breaches, verse 9, in the wall of the city of David were many. That's Jerusalem, clearly. And you collected the waters of the lower pool. This actually was a, a water project that was uh, initiated during the reign of King Hezekiah. There was a tunnel and an aqueduct and a pool and a means by which uh, Jerusalem might endeavor to survive uh, certain sieges uh, by virtue of this uh, water uh, engineering. And it's being spoken of here during the days of Isaiah. Um, so the walls of the city of David were many. You collected the waters uh, of the lower pool. Then you counted the houses of Jerusalem. So what are we dealing with? We're dealing with Jerusalem, all right? And tore down houses to fortify the wall. If you need more building material to strengthen the walls and the breaks in the walls, well, then uh, we got some houses here we can tear down, and that gives us the stone and the wood and the material that we need, at least, you know, to, uh, to patch the, uh, the breaks in the wall. And since uh, quite a few of us are dead by now anyway, we don't need that many extra houses, all right? We can count the houses, and we can correlate or we can gauge how many houses we can tear down to... Uh, to rebuild the walls. All right, so this is what we're dealing with. It is an anonymous oracle. It does describe the fall of Jerusalem, but we are left then to puzzle as we work our way through the context and the upcoming verses. Well, a prophecy for the fall of Jerusalem is, is fine and, and good, but which fall of Jerusalem are we talking about? All right, do you have any idea how many times Jerusalem gets conquered? <laughs> okay, how many times it's surrounded by enemies? How many times it's threatened? All right. We see a siege that takes place. We see a captivity here. Everyone is taken captive together. So um, if you read a commentary that talks about the siege by Sennacherib or the siege by the Assyrians, um, you realize that's a flawed commentary because the Assyrians didn't have any victory. The Assyrians did not take the uh, captives captive that are spoken of here. But Nebuchadnezzar did. Babylon does. Later on, the Persians will conquer. <coughs> uh, the Greeks are going to conquer conquer. The Romans are going to conquer. All right. The, the Muslims are going to conquer in, uh, by the time we get to the 6th century, the 7th century AD. And then there is conquering after conquering after conquering all through the, the 2,000 years of the church age. What is, and we have some prophetic conquerings that are going to take place as well. We have Antichrist. And, and when the forces of Antichrist have Jerusalem surrounded, sometimes Old Testament prophecies are looking ahead in an eschatological view. And we have to consider all of these things as potential fulfillments as we work our way through these verses and try to determine in the context of this passage, is it only looking ahead to Babylon? Is that as far as it goes? Or does it look ahead to Babylon and at the same time 
<clears throat> look down to the end time, does it look into the future, into eschatology, looking forward in the second advent to the coming of Jesus Christ, all right? And that's what we've seen again and again and again in almost every chapter going back to chapter 13. We've been looking at Babylon, we've been looking at Moab, we've been looking at the Philistines, been looking at all these other places, the land of warring wings, all of these oracles, and while they may have a shorter fulfillment in the immediate day and age that Isaiah lived in, really every chapter we've been dealing with has looked ahead to the second advent of Jesus Christ, all right? And that is something we want to keep in mind as we work our way through this, uh, <clears throat> through this chapter as well. And the Valley of Vision appears to reference Jerusalem, but a distant future Jerusalem. The Valley of Vision appears to reference Jerusalem in a distant coming time. That's why it's called the Valley of Vision. It is something that is seen in a vision. And it's something that's seen as a valley rather than as a mountain. All right, Typically, Jerusalem is thought of as a mountain. You have Mount Zion, for example, the mountain of God's inheritance, the mountain of God's presence. Jerusalem is a mountain throughout the Old Testament. But here Jerusalem is called a valley. And it's kind of fun reading the commentaries and trying to watch these guys explain how a mountain can become a valley. I don't think it's complicated at all because prophetically we know at the second of Advent of Jesus Christ, the valleys are going to be lifted up. The mountains are going to be brought down. That there's going to be a significant change of the topography of Israel. It is spoken of in the prophets that this is what's going to happen. The mountains will be made valleys. The valleys will be made mountains as, as the plateau of God's presence becomes what it will be in the tribulation of, uh, or in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. So it's a fascinating study. If you ever want to work it out, read through uh, Ezekiel sometime. Read through a temple that's going to be built someday. There's a temple that's going to be built on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and it's described in Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48. You've got nine full chapters at the end of Ezekiel that describe that temple. And if you draw it out and take the measurements and look at that temple, one thing you realize, that temple is too big. That temple will not fit on uh, today's uh, version of Mount Zion, all right? On today's topography of Jerusalem. And all the back and forth and the fighting between the Jews and the Arabs and, and uh, the Jews want to put their temple back on their mountain again and the, the Arabs have a mosque that's sitting up there. And all this, uh, this conflict between uh, the Jews and the Arabs about that mountain. Well, Jesus Christ is going to take care of that when he returns. And the, the topography itself is going to be significantly different when Christ returns. We're told that when he lands on the Mount of Olives, his feet land and then a, a massive earthquake splits the, uh, the Mount of Olives, north and south, and a brand new valley comes into place, right? The way of escape for the residents of Jerusalem. They have a, a valley of escape, a valley of refuge. There's also, prophetically, the valley of vision, we read about here in this chapter, and a valley of decision, okay? Which is also the name of a radio program, but um, beyond that, from Joel chapter 3, we have the valley of decision. Hold your finger here. In Isaiah 22, and I'll show you what we would do if uh, this was not a uh, one chapter per Sunday uh, format, all right? If this was a, uh, an in-depth format, all right? Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Joel chapter 3. In order to study the valley of vision, we would have to stop and study the valley of decision Look at these in tandem, understand where they overlap, understand where they are connected. 
identify, is it the same valley? Is it a different valley? They're, all, they're both eschatological, that's clear. And how do we relate the valley of decision to the valley of vision? <coughs> Joel chapter 3. Um, where do I want to pick up here? Let's go to verse 9. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare war. Rouse the mighty men. Let all the soldiers draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a mighty man. <laughs> I love this, okay? Because this is just as much scripture as the, uh, the, the pacifist passages of, of Isaiah and Micah. All right? And everybody wants to put the bumper stickers on that talk about beating your swords into uh, uh, pruning hooks and your spears into plowshares. Everybody loves that visualized world peace bumper sticker uh, based upon Isaiah and Micah. Well, this passage has just the exact opposite. Almost word for word, but turned around. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let your weak say, I am a mighty man. And when the Lord of hosts leads forth his army into battle, even the, even the scrawniest recruit becomes the, the mightiest uh, Captain America, all right, in, uh, in something that's far better than the super soldier serum of uh, the Marvel Universe, all right? We're talking about those that are following the Lord Jesus Christ to Armageddon. And even the weak becomes the, uh, the mighty man of valor, becomes the, the great heroes like Hercules that would go down into a pit and kill a lion on a snowy day and things like that from the, uh, the Old Testament record. Continuing in Joel 3. So we have, a, we, have a, we have a passage here for war. And we've got to understand what order does this come in. They're both true. We can't just pick and choose and say, well, I like the pacifist verses from Isaiah and Micah. I don't like the warmongering verses of, of Joel. So I'll just pretend that the warmongering verses aren't there. All right? And I'm going to pick and choose what verses of the Bible I want to, I want to follow, and, and I'm just going to ignore the verses I want to pretend aren't there. No. That's, uh, that's far too common in our generation. We don't pick and choose what verses to follow. We follow all of them. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. Every jot and tittle is true from the plan of God. And so we reconcile Joel with Isaiah. We realize that before peace can come, victory has to be secured. Victory will be secured through uh, the the peace will come through military victory, and until you have the military victory, you cannot beat your swords into plowshares and your spears into pruning hooks. Verse eleven of Joel three says, "Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves here. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones, and let the yeah that's us by the way, the resurrected saints that have come with the Lord, and let the nations be aroused and come to the valley of." Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. I love the name Jehoshaphat. I, I, I regret we didn't have a third son. We could have named Jehoshaphat. Could have been Bob and Chris's little brother, Jehoshaphat. <clears throat> Yahweh judges. Yahweh judges. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. When Jesus teaches this in Matthew 24, he says he gathers them as the sheep and the goats and he sets them, divides them apart to the right and to the left in the valley of Jehoshaphat, in the valley of decision. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. 
Come, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes and multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. And this is why it becomes a radio broadcast title and so forth. The valley of decision, the hour of decision, the recognition that if a gospel message is being preached to you and you are not yet in possession of eternal life, then you better pay attention because today could be your final opportunity to make that decision for Christ before the trumpet sounds, before the church is removed out of here and you're left behind in, uh, in the coming tribulation of Israel. So it is a uh, significant context. All right, that's a tease, that's a, that's a taste, that's an appetizer, but we cannot plunge into it. If uh, we were doing a more in-depth study, we would really tear apart the whole doctrine related to the valley of decision. The question is asked, it's a rhetorical question, what's the matter with you? What's the matter with you and why are you up on the housetops? All right, as we see it here in Isaiah 22.1, and as I said, every parent asks this question, every pastor asks this question probably, every, every, uh, this question gets asked, it is rhetorical, uh, there's no real good answer and you wouldn't want to hear it anyway. Uh, as far as uh, as that. A lot of times when my dad would ask, what were you thinking? Uh, the truth is, I wasn't thinking, Dad. That's why you're asking, what was I thinking? Had I been thinking, I wouldn't have ended up where I am. What is the matter with you that you have gone up to the housetops? Why are you on the roof? All right. Is there any good reason to be up there? And uh, beyond the fact that we have roof stories throughout the Old Testament of kings that get in trouble looking around on the roof and seeing women taking baths and things like that, there's, uh, there's other issues with people walking around on the roof and full of pride and full of um, judgment. But another reason to go up on the roof is to hide, to look for help, to, uh, as a last place of refuge as the water is rising like in a flood, um, why are you on the housetops? You who are full of noise, you boisterous town, you exultant city. So basically they are a party town. They're having fun, they're eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. They are absolutely given out to, uh, to entertainment, to fun and games, to celebration, to uh, everything frivolous, frittering away their, their daily life, except now they're racing up to the rooftops all of a sudden. Well, what brings you up here now? This morning you were having fun with the fun and games and the drinking and the partying. What brings you to the rooftop now? What are you, why are you looking for help now? Looking to the mountain now. For the, uh, verse 5, For the Lord God of hosts has a day of panic, subjugation, and confusion in the valley of vision, a breaking down of walls and a crying to the mountain. Now all of a sudden they want to cry to the mountain. Now, all of a sudden, they want to sit up there on the rooftop and start crying to Mount Zion, saying, Lord, deliver. Lord, save. We beseech thee. Okay? And it's not going to happen. They're going to be taken captive. They are going to be hauled away into Babylon. As this passage has the Babylonian fulfillment, there will be a second advent fulfillment where Jesus Christ does return. And we'll show you that also. All right. But a crying to the mountain. A crying to the mountain. When Babylon has them surrounded, they're, they're crying to the earthly temple. When Antichrist has them surrounded, prophetically, eschatologically, we're talking to the end times, they're going to cry to the 
heavenly mountain. They're going to cry to the throne of God above. They're going to look upon Him whom they pierced. They will be humbled to accept the Messiah that they crucified in His first advent. And that is an entirely different mountain that they're going to be looking to. And from there, salvation will come. From there, as they're looking for the right kind of mountain, finally, Christ will descend from heaven and He will rescue them at that, at that point of time. All right. Housetops. You want to do a study on housetops? It's kind of fun. Housetops are places of refuge, such as hiding the spies that had gone into Jericho. Rahab the harlot hid the spies on her housetop. Places of refuge and vantage points from which to look for help. Housetops are places of refuge and vantage points from which to look for help. Joshua 2, verse 6 and verse 8. Judges 9, 51. Even a couple of Proverbs that make us chuckle. All right. Proverbs 21, 9 and 25, 24. But let's start with Joshua. We understand, hopefully. We might have to update this a little bit in our own modern uh, realities. Maybe we don't go on our housetop anymore. Maybe we have uh, bomb shelters. We dig, uh, we dig survival shelters and bury them um, in our backyard or something of the sort. But the concept is still the same. We have a place of refuge, a place of safety that we uh, hunker down and uh, pray. <laughs> All right. So Joshua 2. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because I want to get to the second half of this chapter. Joshua 2, verse 6 and verse 8. Um, the two spies have gone into Jericho and they come to the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab. They lodged there and uh, presumably they lodged in a room inside the house until uh, the soldiers came and then they were evacuated up to the uh, compartments on the roof. And uh, so she took them and hidden them and uh, verse 6, she had brought them up to the roof. It's the same vocabulary, by the way, the same Hebrew term that we have in Isaiah 22. And hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. And so there it is. The same vocabulary in verse 6 and in verse 8. And it's a place of refuge. And it's a place where they hide and uh, they can subsequently escape. Judges chapter 9 and verse 51. Judges 9. After Joshua comes Judges. And um, without reading this entire chapter, um, goodness. Well, there's a tower here in Shechem. The men of Shechem also died. The men of the tower of Shechem also died, about a thousand men and women. Uh, then Abimelech, verse 50, went to Thebes and he camped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower in the center of the city and all the men and women with all the leaders of the city fled there and shut themselves in and they went up to the roof, same vocabulary, of the tower. So Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and approached the entrance of the tower to burn it with fire. But a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head, crushing his skull. All right. Fun stories. Aren't these great? I love these right before lunch. works out real well. But the point being, the rooftop is a place of refuge. It's a place that you flee to. It's a place that, uh, that you, 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 it's like a panic room. You're running there and you're looking for your rescue. You're not sure what's going to happen. The second advent of Jesus Christ, this is uh, what they're at first going to do. They're going to run to the rooftops 
And uh, Jesus has a warning for them in the uh, upper room discourse about those on the rooftop. Um, and they, they shouldn't stay on that rooftop. They need to flee. We'll talk about that also. All right. The two passages in Proverbs, these uh, make me chuckle. Um, they're both the same, so we only have to read one of them. Um, let's do Proverbs 21.9. All right, see, you, know, you see what I'm talking about. It is better to live in a corner of a roof. And that's our vocabulary from Isaiah 22. Better to live in a corner of a roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. All right? If that's what it's like inside the house, then the husband might be better off just going up to the, uh, to the, you know, the bomb shelter or going up to the, the rooftop refuge. It becomes his way of escape, as it were. All right. Chuckle, chuckle. Uh, but it's, in the, it's repeated twice, in Proverbs 21 and in Proverbs 25. Okay? And there's actual wisdom in that and application to be made, but you have to wait for that on Wednesday mornings. Housetops are featured in several prophetic contexts. Housetops are featured in several prophetic contexts. And I find it interesting, a housetop kind of a household sometimes made it a place of idolatry and they would go up on, they'd have their own personal high place up on their roof and, and pursue idolatry on the rooftops. Um, but also prophets would occasionally use their rooftops as a venue for prophetic utterance, as a venue for training the, the school of the prophets, the, the uh, student prophets that are training under the older prophets, such as in the case of 1 Samuel 9, verses 25 and 26. And uh, here is Samuel and Saul, and uh, they're up on the rooftop. Got a sticky page this morning. There it is. All right. And so um, they had been up on a high place, and then they came down from there and into the city. Verse 25, when they came down from the high place into the city, Samuel spoke with Saul on the roof. And they arose early, and at daybreak Samuel called to Saul on the roof, saying, Get up, that I may send you away. So Saul arose, both he and Samuel went out into the street. And as they were going down to the edge of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Say to the servant that he might go ahead of us and pass on, but you remain standing now, that I may proclaim the word of God to you. So what is up with the roof venue between Samuel and Saul in that particular chapter? Okay? I think there's more to it than we usually pay attention to. Eschatologically, Jesus spoke of the rooftops in Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, he said, if you're on the roof, you're in the wrong place. <laughs> Why did you flee to the roof? You don't have time for that. Flee. Flee the city. Matthew 24, 17 Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things that are in the house. We back up to verse 15, Matthew 24. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet. You understand? <laughs> you know, sometimes, does it seem tedious sometimes? Does it seem detailed? It has to be. If you don't study Daniel along with Ezekiel, along with Ezra, along with Isaiah, Jeremiah, they all have to be studied together. You have to have a comprehensive view of the Scriptures. A little here, a little there. Put these together. Um, Jesus obviously wasn't a... Uh, <laughs> uh, he didn't subscribe to the view that Daniel's prophecy was fulfilled in the Maccabean era. 
All right? You can, you can read books to this day that tell you that Daniel's over and done with. That was all fulfilled with Antiochus Epiphanes in the Maccabean era. Jesus didn't think so. Here's Jesus 200 years after uh, Epiphanes saying it hadn't happened yet. When you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. And whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things that are in the house. In other words, don't stay on that rooftop and don't linger getting off the rooftop. Don't slow down to grab anything out of the, out of the house on your way. In fact, I think it's better just to jump off the side of the roof than to actually climb down into the house and work your way through the house and get out the front door. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. This is the urgency of the escape. If you're in the field, great, you're already out of the city. Run from there. Run and keep running. And woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. All right? Not because we're misogynist or we hate women. We're just saying that pregnant women run slow. <laughs> All right? They, and babies slow you down. And pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. All right. But back to Isaiah 22, they are on the rooftops. They are on the housetops. They decided all of a sudden, party's over, let's get up on the roof, let's seek the Lord. And, well, a little bit late. A little bit late. In fact, by this point in time, your leaders are already gone. A couple other things, some, some details from the poetry here. There's, a, there's a, a trinity in this passage, the noisy, boisterous, exultant city. There's kind of a trinity in those expressions. The noisy, boisterous, exultant city in verse 2. It has now been given over to panic, subjugation, and confusion in verse 5. The noisy, boisterous, exultant city has been given to panic, subjugation, and confusion. And it's God himself that's produced it. The Lord God of hosts has a day of panic, subjugation, and confusion. All right. A lot of principles that we can glean out of that. Uh, And yet, we can be thankful. First of all, who sent it? The Lord sent it. Okay, so even though he's using a foreign army, even though he's using unbelievers to judge his people, it's still God doing it. And it's still God's mercy, it's still God's faithfulness at work. And the fact that it's called a day, he has a day of panic, subjugation, and confusion. It is a concise period of time, it is a finite boundary. It is not forever. It will accomplish his purpose and then it will be done. That's what this day is all about. The day of the Lord is a great and fearsome day, but it is only a day, and then it is complete. And the day of the Lord will give way to the eternal day. It will give day to the day of glory. All right? Different things that we would study here. Now, the siege, I think, is clear. As it says, they don't die in battle. A city under siege dies of starvation rather than battle. As it says here in verse 2, your slain were not slain with the sword, nor did they die in battle. The, uh, the benefit of laying siege to a city is that you're not risking your troops, you're not risking death, you're just camping around the city until they starve to death. And when they're so starving and so emaciated and so weak that they can't even defend themselves anymore, then you just walk in, all right? And then you take them without a fight, and you tie them up and you haul them off to captivity. 
And this has been their experience by the Babylonians, by the Romans, and sadly it's going to happen again in the uh, tribulation. Political leaders will be captured attempting to escape. Political leaders. Yeah, so much for your political heroes, right? They, when the going gets tough, they're gone, all right? They are, they are looking out for themselves. And if that means leaving you behind to die in starvation and the siege, they are taking the provisions they can and attempting to, uh, to sneak out of there. But they will be caught prophetically, Isaiah says. Nope, they're going to be caught. And uh, all of your rulers have fled together. They have been captured without the bow. In other words, it didn't take much to capture them. All of you who were found were taken captive together, though they had fled far away. They're going to end up in the same place anyway, those that fled and those that were captured in the city. There is a narrative of this in Jeremiah 39. Jeremiah 39. So, preview. In Jeremiah 39, when Jerusalem is finally captured. Okay? And this is, there's a reason why we're teaching Isaiah followed by Jeremiah. 66 chapters of Isaiah is going to be followed by 52 chapters of Jeremiah. We're going to take them in tandem. They're about, you know, from 700 AD to, they're about 150 years apart, okay? 130 years apart between the two prophets. Isaiah warned what was going to happen. Jeremiah sees it happen in his day. So in Jeremiah 39, when Jerusalem was captured in the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. In the eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, now know how much time does it take to, to starve them out? In the ninth day of the month, the city wall was breached. All right, the city wall was breached. There had been some previous breaches that they tried to brick up and, 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 and shore up. But this was the final breach. This is why they still observe it to this day, the Tishba'av that they weep over today, the Jewish people today. And all the uh, officials of the king of Babylon came in and sat down at the middle gate. Nergal, Sarezer, I can't pronounce these names, Samgar, Nebu, Sarsikam, and Rabsaris, Nergal, Sarezer, the Rab Mag, and all the rest of the officials of the king of Babylon. Notice, when Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and all the men of war saw them, they fled And they went out of the city at night by way of the king's garden through the gate between the two walls. In other words, they had a secret exit out out the garden and through the the gate between two walls and a little hidden escape path here. And he went out toward the Arabah, but the army of the Chaldeans pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. So even though they got far, they're going to end up at the same place that the, uh, the rest of the inhabitants of the city. Uh, They seized him and brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath, and he passed sentence on him. And the king of Babylon slew the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. All right, so much for the line of David, right? Does this thwart the seed of the woman promise? Nope, God's already made provision for that. And um, slew his sons before his eyes, the last thing that he sees, because then he blinds his eyes. And the king of Babylon also slew all the nobles of Judah. All the nobles of Judah? No. Daniel and his friends are already safely uh, placed in Babylon. They've already been taken to Babylon and put in political office going back to 605 B.C. Then he blinded Zedekiah's eyes and bound him in fetters of bronze to bring him to Babylon. Okay? 
I know it's gruesome, but rejoice in how faithful the Lord is in these things. Because Zedekiah was given two prophecies and they were both true. One prophet said, you'll never see Babylon. Another prophet said, you're going to die in Babylon. And Zedekiah just threw up his hands and said, you guys are a bunch of liars. I can't believe any one of you. But they were both true. He died in Babylon, but he never saw it. He never saw it because they put his eyes out here in, the, in, his, uh, in his capture. All right. Verses 8 through 14. There's a principle here. Temporal life hardship should humble man and drive man or drive us to repentance. Temporal life hardship should humble man and drive us to repentance. And it didn't happen. It didn't happen for the residents of Jerusalem. It didn't happen until it was too late and then they were captive. Temporal life hardship should humble man. When you and I go through tough times, how do we respond? When we go through tough times, physically or health-wise or financially or job-wise or marriage-wise or whatever else, when God is disciplining us, how do we respond to the hand of His discipline? Does it humble us to seek His will? Or do we just get mad at Him for what He makes us go through and then grit our teeth and try to solve our own problems? Well, we'll fix that. We'll just... just We'll just tear down some houses and use the rubble to rebuild the walls and we'll be fine. All right? And we'll just, we'll just dig a tunnel and create this aqueduct and we'll get a lower pool to go with the upper pool and we'll be fine. Who needs God anyway? We'll fix ourselves. We'll defend ourselves. Okay? And you see the arrogance at work. We see the uh, rejection of the hand of God's discipline here in this chapter. So in verse 8, when he removes the defense of Judah, he did that. God did that. That's a punitive measure. That's discipline upon His people. And yet, what do they do? In that day, you depended on the weapons of the house of the forest. They said, hey, we got a fallback plan. Hey, wait a minute. We know where we can find some extra weapons. Hey, wait a minute. We have a stash of armaments in Solomon's old palace. Let's grab those. And you saw that the breaches in the wall of the city of David were many. Verse 9, you collected the waters of the lower pool. You counted the houses of Jerusalem and tore down houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the waters of the old pool. But you did not depend on him who made it. Nor did you take into consideration him who planned it long ago. You're doing everything you possibly can do in your own human effort to solve your own problems. And you're living in complete denial that you're, you're where you are because of the hand of God's discipline is upon you. Your solution at this point ought to be to repent, to humble yourself, to to seek His mercy. Therefore, in that day, verse 12, the Lord God of hosts called you to weeping, to wailing, to shaving the head, to the wearing of sackcloth. God Himself called you to a season of public mourning. Instead, you threw a party. Instead, there is gaiety and gladness, killing of cattle and slaughtering of sheep, eating of meat and drinking of wine. If you're a city under siege and you've got diminished food anyway, what in the world are you doing just throwing one last hurrah? You're just completely exhausting all the food stores you've got left. Why? Because you quit caring. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. All right? And rather than repent, rather rather than throw yourself in the mercy of the Lord, 
You just decide, let's go out with a bang. Let's go out with a great big party. Let's just stuff ourselves and get ourselves drunk. And, and let's just, that's why they got captured without a fight. They were so blithering drunk that uh, they couldn't have stood up to defend themselves anyway. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we may die. But the Lord of hosts revealed himself to me. Surely this iniquity shall not be forgiven you until you do die, says the Lord God of hosts. See, the truth is, these guys that are in Jerusalem, they are going to die. All right? Most of them. A handful, about a third are going to be hauled off into remnant or captivity. Most of them are going to die anyway. All right? He's already preserved his remnant when he took them to captivity prior. He he, uh, provided for that ahead of time. God removed their defenses, but they did everything humanly possible to defend themselves. God removed their defenses, but they did everything humanly possible to defend themselves. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we may die. I find this interesting. History actually repeats itself. Are you familiar with Daniel chapter 5? On the night that Babylon falls, what are they doing? Belteshazzar actually is hosting a monster feast and they're stuffing themselves, and they're drinking wine. They even bring out the goblets from the temple, the Jewish temple, so that they can defy the Lord God even more. And then the writing on the wall shows up, and Daniel says, you guys are done. Mene, mene, tikalufershin, you guys are done. Persia is going to throw down Babylon this very night. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we may die. Think about it, though. Is this not a mindset common to unbelievers? Or carnal believers today? I mean, life is short. Play hard, right? You only live once. Eat and drink. Hey, why not? Well, this is the wrong mindset for eternal beings. This is the wrong mindset for eternal beings. What a hopeless, pathetic way to live. Well, we're going to die tomorrow anyway. Wait a minute. We are eternal beings. If we do physically die, we're going to rise again in the resurrection. In the great resurrection chapter of 1 Corinthians 15, this verse gets quoted. 1 Corinthians 15.32 is a quotation here from Isaiah. He talks about uh, why we suffer martyrdom, why we struggle in the Christian walk, why we are in danger every hour. I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. We better be serious about our Christian walk. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does that profit me? Why do you think, you know, I hope this is on DVD. I want to see this deleted scene someday when when Paul was thrown to the wild beasts at Ephesus. He lived to tell the story. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Biblical Christianity ought to be focused on eternity. We ought to be mindful day by day of our expected resurrection. If all we do is hope for Christ in this life, we're wasting our time. We ought to go the party route that those guys are going. He uses this verse to defend the mindset of biblical Christianity that keeps the resurrection in view. This eating and drinking mindset is also eschatological. Jesus spoke of this in Matthew 24, verses 37 through 39. It will be as in the days of Noah. They will be eating and drinking, marrying, giving a marriage. That's what they were doing on the very day that Noah entered the ark. That's what they're going to be doing the very day that Christ returns. 
This eating and drinking mindset is also eschatological. That's why I think that this prophecy in Isaiah 22, the Valley of Vision prophecy, does address the the Babylonian captivity, but it goes so far beyond that to describe eschatologically what happens in Jerusalem when Antichrist has them surrounded, when they are looking for their eternal deliverance, their eternal salvation. All right. Are you familiar? Yeah, you should be familiar with this. If not, real quickly, Matthew 24, 37 through 39. What are we saying? Are we saying that drinking is bad, partying is bad? No, we're not saying that. But we're saying be biblically minded. Put things in perspective. Matthew 24, 37 through 39. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand. That's the thing. We better be on board with God's plan and program. We better be mindful of His dispensational scheme, of his, the plan and program of the ages. We better know where we are in the body of Christ, how the, the church ends with the rapture, how the tribulation follows the rapture, how the second advent c- concludes the tribulation, how the millennial kingdom follows the second advent of Jesus Christ, how the new heavens and new earth follows the thousand years of the millennial kingdom. All right? If we are not structured on, the, on our eschatological framework, woe be unto us. We better be on board with what God has revealed. They did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. And there will be two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding in the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. All right? The second advent of Jesus Christ. This isn't the rapture. This is those that are cast into hell. They will be taken, cast into hell, because no unbeliever will enter the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. All right. Wish we had more time on that. But the second half of the chapter, in my mind, the second half of the chapter is even more fun than the first half of the chapter. And now we're going to name names. Isaiah 22, 15 through 25. The Lord has a personal message for Isaiah to deliver to the steward Shabna. Shabna. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Come to this steward, to Shebna, who is in charge of the royal household. What are you doing here? What right do you have here? And it's almost identical to the question in the first part of the chapter. What are you doing? What are you doing? All right. What are you doing on the rooftops? What are you doing up here? What right do you have here? And whom do you have here? That you have hewn a tomb for yourself here, there's three uses of here, 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 here in verse 16. It's another trinity, and it's a, it's a huge rebuke for the pride of this steward named Shebna, who's uh, a bit full of himself in the monument that he's building. They, so you've hewn a tomb for yourself here. You who, who, you who, hew, that's tough. Man, retranslate that. That's, that's rough in English. You who hew a tomb in the height. You who carve a resting place for yourself in the rock. You know, the upper class of Israel, the upper class of Judah, at this time, 
were forging alliances with Egypt. They thought that Egypt was going to rescue them from the Assyrians. They were forming commerce and business arrangements with the Egyptians. They were even adopting Egyptian mindsets. And what's more of an Egyptian mindset than building a monument for your death? All right, building your own, making yourself a mummy and building your own tomb and creating your own uh, afterlife of glory before you die. And this evidently now has become the prideful mindset of, uh, of Shebna. Verse 17, Behold, the Lord is about to hurl you headlong, O man. He is about to grasp you firmly and roll you tightly like a ball to be cast into a vast country. There you will die, and there your splendid chariots will be. You shame of your master's house. See, a steward should give credit to his master's house, not be a shame to his master's house. I will depose you from your office and I will pull you down from your station. Remember, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So speaking of humble, here he is. In that, then it will come about in that day, I will summon my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. Here is the humble who is going to be promoted. He's going to take Shebna's job. And I will clothe him with your tunic and tie your sash securely about him. I will entrust him with your authority. He will become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. He's actually going to fulfill a powerful role as any steward should fulfill. He will get to fulfill this role. He goes on to say, um, you'll notice, uh, verse 22, Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder, when he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. Does that language sound familiar? All right. This is a significant office to be the steward for the house of David. Wow, what a privilege. We are stewards for Jesus Christ. Do we understand our stewardship? I will drive him like a peg in a firm place, and he will become a throne of glory to his father's house. And this is a beautiful message. And you say, well, that's insulting. Who wants to be a peg? Right? I don't want to be a peg. How dumb is that? I want to be a, I want to be a tower. I want to be a... Well, he didn't call you to be a tower. He called you to be a peg. All right? Shebna was not happy to be a peg. Shebna wanted to build a monument to himself. But uh, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, he's content to be a peg. We should all be content to be pegs. You know, pegs are useful. Look what you can do with a peg. You can, stuff hangs on you, you know? Verse 24, they will hang on him all the glory of his father's house, offspring and issue, and the least of vessels from bowls to the jars. You know, pegs, pegs are good. If the peg is broken, bad things happen. Look, yeah, in that day, verse 25, now eventually even the peg will come under judgment because Jerusalem does fall. Uh, the peg driven in a firm place will give way. You know, if the wall is gone, what's the peg going to... peg can't sit in nothing. Uh, the peg driven in a firm place will give way. It will even break off and fall, and the load hanging on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. But you'll notice there's the, the vessels, the bowls, the jars. Pegs are useful. You can hang stuff on them. It's good to be a peg. If God calls you to be a peg, be a peg. Be a faithful peg. If that's what he calls you to do, be a faithful peg. Don't get full of yourself and say, well, I want to be a tower or I want to be a monument. 
All right. So here's what we have. And these are the principles for you and I to glean. Because we all have giftedness, all right? And our giftedness, there's a variety of gifts, there's a variety of ministries, there's a variety of effects. And where he places you is where you serve. And if he places you as a peg in a wall, then be the best peg in a wall you can be. The steward of the royal house was a position of tremendous trust. The steward of the royal house is throughout the Old Testament. You know, it's a, the, the, the king was busy running the kingdom. He needed a steward to run his household. He needed a steward to operate the, the palace and, the, and the, uh, you know, to guard the harem and to raise the children and to, and to uh, put food on the table and all the activities of the household to prepare for the banquets when the Queen of Sheba comes in or the king of whatever comes in for the state visits and whatever. The steward of the royal house was a huge position of tremendous trust. Often because they became the assassins, <laughs> right? They would poison the king and become the new king in the, in the Gentile pagan lands and so forth. Uh, the trust could be betrayed so we have different examples of this. 1 Kings 4, 6, 1 Kings 16, 9. I just don't have the time to take us through these passages. 1 Kings 18, 3. 2 Kings 15, 5. 2 Chronicles 28, 7. These are all positions of trust. And uh, if you're faithful in that trust, in a couple of cases, the, the king's son serves as a steward until he becomes king. Sometimes it was... Uh, it was a position that the crown prince would operate under. Man, do I have time for this? Yeah, real quickly. First Kings. Only because um, some of these are names you recognize already, but you don't recognize that you recognize them. Does that make sense? Like Obadiah. Say, so, oh, that's what Obadiah was all about. Obadiah the steward, not Obadiah the prophet. Okay. So we have, uh, in 1 Kings 4, we have, uh, and this also, this is a passage also I think clears up a lot of confusion. People take uh, the steward of the royal house as being some kind of a grand vizier in the, in the Egyptian court, or being a, a prime minister in a Persian court, or something like that. Wrong, not in the Jewish court. The steward of the household was just that. He was the steward over the personal royal household of the king. And so when we look at Solomon's administration... In 1 Kings 4, King Solomon was king over all Israel. These were his officials. Azariah, the son of Zadok, was the priest, high priest. El uh, Horeph and Ahijah, the sons of Shisha, were secretaries. Keep that in mind, because when Shebna gets fired, he gets demoted to secretary. Um, Jehoshaphat, there's that name again. The son of Ahilud was the recorder. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the army. Zadok and Abiathar were priests. Azariah, the son of Nathan, was over the deputies. And Zabud, the son of Nathan, a priest, was the king's friend. There's a job description for you. And uh, verse 6, Ahishar was over the household. That's our term we're looking at today. He was over the household. He was the steward over the household. Each man had to provide... And then... uh, uh, Adoniram, the son of Abda, was over the men subject to forced labor. And then there's 12 deputies, and then there's some other folks. Anyway, the steward was a position of tremendous trust. 
Second Kings 15, 5. Well, I'm going to have to let those go. Let's get those go. Or I'm going to run out of time. What is interesting is that Shebna, even when he gets fired, is given a different office. Shebna continues in King Hezekiah's service in his diminished capacity as scribe. And we'll come back to him again. We will see Shebna again in chapter 36 and chapter 37. So stay tuned about uh, 14 weeks from now. We're going to be in Isaiah 36 and Isaiah 37. And we're going to see Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. And so there's three offices there. And Shebna had been demoted. He continues to serve in the diminished capacity. I think that's to his credit. I think it's to his credit that he accepts the lower position, that he's humbled under the hand of God's discipline. You know, in so many ways, this chapter is telling the same story twice. In the first half of the chapter, we have Jerusalem not being humbled by God's discipline and just deciding to throw a party and get drunk and die. But then in the second half of the chapter, we have Shebna, who responds to God's discipline, who is humbled by the hand of God's discipline, and who continues on in productive service in a diminished capacity, continues on as scribe in the days of Hezekiah. But we'll see them here. And we'll get to that in verses 3, 4, 11, 12, 22, chapter 37 and verse 2. He's a useful servant in the diminished capacity. The episode of Isaiah 36 and 37 is also restated in 2 Kings chapter 18 and 19. But here's the point. It is required of stewards to be found faithful. It is required of stewards to be found faithful. The whole principle of stewardship is if you are not faithful, you're fired. God will remove you as steward. He will find a faithful steward. All right? And stewardship is a vital understanding of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament alike. Why do you think presently Israel is on hold? Why do you think presently there is a partial hardening of the Jewish people until such time as the fullness of the Gentiles comes in? Israel in their stewardship was not faithful. And Israel was placed on hold and their stewardship was removed. Now stewardship is vested in the body of Christ. It's vested in the church. But that won't be the case forever because our age is going to come to a close as well. When the trumpet sounds and the rapture of the church brings the church to a conclusion, we are brought to heaven and what happens to the stewardship? Israel returns to their stewardship duties the Jewish people will once again engage in their stewardship responsibilities before the Gentiles of this earth. It is required of stewards to be found faithful. And so I want to close with these verses here, Luke 12, 42, 1 Corinthians 4, and 1 Peter 4, because this is where our application comes in. Don't be a Shebna, be a Hilkiah, all right? Or be a Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. Luke 12, 42. The problem is I think we've got too many Shebnas around. Too many Shebnas that are serving, but the whole point of their serving is they can build a monument for themselves. They have no interest in furthering the glory of the house that they're serving. They're only promoting their own glory. Don't be a Shebna. All right? 
Luke 12, 42, the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Faithful and sensible. That's what we're called to be. Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. If a steward is faithful, the steward will be rewarded when the master returns. But if that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming, and he begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. In other words, if he's a Shebna, the master of that slave will come on a day he does not expect in an hour he does not know, and he will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. All right. Well, more on that. We taught it in the Life of Christ series. It is required of stewards to be found faithful. If he's found to be a Shebna, He's fired. He is removed. And a faithful shepherd will be put in his place. A faithful steward will be put in his place. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 and 2. You understand, you and I have stewardship responsibilities. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ, as stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. That one be found trustworthy. Now, you cannot lose your salvation, but you can sure as anything lose your ministry. If you are not faithful, if you are not trustworthy, you can lose your ministry. Finally, 1 Peter 4, verses 10 and 11. First Peter 4, verses 10 and 11. As each one has received a gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. You see, we're stewards. My gift is pastor teacher. Your gift is whatever your gift is. Fill in the blank. Use that gift as a good steward of the manifold grace of God. Don't be a Shebna. You don't have your stewardship so you can build a monument to yourself so that you can puff up yourself and make a name for yourself. Your, serv- your stewardship is to serve others. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Not every, not every stewardship is a speaking gift. Most of them are serving gifts. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. In the conclusion, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. We're glorifying Jesus Christ. We're not building empires. It is required of stewards to be found faithful. Don't be a Shebna. All right? Don't be a Shebna. Although, to be fair, I do like the humility of Shebna after he submits to his discipline. He continues to serve as a scribe. That, to me, is extraordinary. A lot of people would just get mad and throw their hands up and say, fine, fire me, then I'm done. Anyway, I'm out of time, but there's more. We'll get back to uh, this, and uh, next week, no, next week we have a missionary. Fasal is going to be here from uh, Pakistan. So in two weeks, we will return to Isaiah chapter 23, the oracle concerning Tyre. Oracle concerning Tyre. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. Thank you for the blessings that we have. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. And Father, we realize that we are stewards. 
Your son is the king. Your son is the apostle and high priest of our confession. Your son is the celebrity of the universe, Father. We are simply stewards in your household. I pray that we would be faithful stewards, faithful and sensible. I pray that when we uh, are face to face with you, that we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Father, I thank you for the example of Shebna. I pray we would learn from that example. I pray that we would respond. That when we identify ourselves being under the hand of God's discipline, that we would be humbled by it. That we would respond to the sorrow that leads to repentance. That we would indeed be repentant. That we might change our thinking and start walking the walk that is pleasing in your sight. Father, I pray that we might be diligent to pursue intimacy with you. Father, you save us by grace through faith. You save us as a work of grace. Your son died on the cross that we should have eternal life. Now, Father, we who have eternal life, we ought to serve you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Father, we we desire now to give you our hearts, not to try to get saved or earn or deserve anything, but we give you our hearts, Father, because it belongs to you. We've been bought with a price. We want to glorify you with all of our being, with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. Thank you, Father. We're making this possible in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.